I wonder if you remember the song made popular in the 1960s by Dionne Warwick. She sang these words, What the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little of. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. No, not just for some, but for everyone. These lyrics, I think, are as true today as they were over 50 years ago. And an interesting fact, Dionne Warwick initially turned down this song because she thought it was too preachy. But maybe we need to keep preaching about love until we all figure out how to live it. The call to love is, at times, reduced, I think, to something rooted in our feelings rather than our actions. In our common language, love is something that we fall into, something that happens to us, something beyond our control. You either feel it or you don't. Those of you that know me know that I watch way too much sports on television. And when football, baseball, hockey, and basketball were paused, I found myself drawn to alternative sports like cornhole. I even watched marble racing and dodge juggling. Now when sporting events go to a commercial, I rarely expect anything profound to happen. But this past Super Bowl, as I was watching the commercials ready to laugh and enjoy the entertaining commercials, I was caught off guard by a New York Life commercial. The heartfelt commercial explained that the ancient Greeks had four words for love. The first is philia, the affection that grows from friendship. The next is storge, the kind of love you have for a parent, a grandparent, or a sibling. Next there is eros, eros which is the uncontrollable urge to say, I love you. The final word for love is different. It's the most admirable form of love, agape, love in action. And as the commercial says, it takes courage, sacrifice, strength. In our scripture for today, the implied question being asked is, how are we as followers of Jesus to live in our world today? I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. Paul begins the section that Allison read in verse 8 with, no, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The word in this text for love is the most admirable form of love, agape, love as action. But in this phrase, I think too much focus has been given to the first part, owe nothing to anyone, which has led this verse to this verse being misunderstood as staying away from financial debt. And when we hear that word debt, we get this anxious feeling in our gut. Think about tuition payments or mortgages or taxes. Debts we hope to eventually pay off. But the word used here is not used in the sense of a financial debt. Instead, it's used in a broader sense as that of obligation. 
Reverend Mary Hinkle Shore, who's the rector and dean of the Lutheran Theological Southern Seminary at Lenore Rhine, says that the language of the balance sheet does not adequately describe the Christian life. It's important to have some understanding, I think, of Roman culture in the first century. Rome was a deeply divided place between the wealthy and the impoverished. There were people from diverse religious and philosophical traditions. The language of obligation is what ruled their lives. To the emperor, they owed honor and they pledged their allegiance. To those who were in positions of privilege and power, they owed respect and often money. Slaves owed their masters service and wives owed submission. Obligation was expected, especially from those who found themselves on the margins, who were the powerless. And that applied to many of those who were in the church in Rome to which Paul wrote. So when Paul exhorts his readers to owe nothing except love, he is commenting on the power systems. The power systems that the church finds itself in. To, know, to owe nothing except love eliminates those structures that divide us. And Paul contends that regardless of social rank or political loyalty or country of origin or anything else, that the only obligation that we owe one another is love. And in Galatians 3.28, we get a sense of that again when Paul writes that there is no longer Jew or Greek, no longer slave or free, no longer male and female, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. So the question, how we should love and how we should live, begins with the question, does it look out for the interest of my neighbor more than my own? Does it manifest the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, generosity? I think it's important for us to know that sometimes we get caught up asking the question, what does the world owe us? Paul would say nothing. And Austin Channing Brown, in her excellent memoir, I'm Still Here, writes that those of us who find ourselves in privileged positions have a temptation to see love as a prize that we are owed, rather than a moral oblig obligation that we must demonstrate. Love dissolves into a demand for grace, for niceness, for endless patience to keep everyone comfortable. In this way, so-called love dodges any responsibility for action. So what does the world owe us? Nothing. But what do we owe the world? Agape. Theologian N.T. Wright says that love is a debt owed to everyone and is something that can never be discharged. I can't say, I've loved this person enough this year. I don't owe them anymore. Though we can pay taxes and we can pay bills and hope to pay them off, we can never pay in full the love that we owe one another. This is the transformation that Paul talks about in Romans 12. It's our spiritual worship, the way we witness to our faith in the world, to participate in the life of the Spirit that Paul talks about in Romans 6 through 8. It's the life of faith that walks according to Abraham, in, Abraham, in Romans 4. 
It's the life that does not judge. Romans 2. It's the love that will never separate us or let us go. The love of Christ from which we cannot break away in Romans 8. Paul says that all the commandments can be summed up in the one that says, love your neighbor as yourself. So what does it mean to love our neighbor in a time like this? Who do we love? Jesus gave us the example of a Samaritan, the one who was despised by his readers, and he described them as someone who was a neighbor whom you should love. Bob Goff, in his book of the same name, says that we should love everyone, everybody, always. And though loving our neighbor sounds possible when we share common values or backgrounds or even assumptions, as we witness the divisions of partisan politics, race, and faith, it seems almost impossible to live out this command to love everyone always. This love goes far beyond what we're used to. In fact, neighbor in Greek is really others of a different kind. That is who we're called to love. In his 2019 commencement address at Mars Hill University, Guy Sells told the graduates, love is life's purpose, being loved and loving, which necessarily includes being heard, seen, understood, and accepted, while also hearing, seeing, understanding, and accepting others. Love welcomes and delights in us as we are, but then works to serve and make us who we are to become, to be loved and to love. That is why we're here. Far too long, I think, though, we've used the commandments to divide us. Nadia Boltz Weber, a Lutheran pastor and author, says that when she was growing up, being a Christian really meant being really good at not doing things, not drinking, not smoking, not dancing, not swearing. And the better you were at not doing things, the better Christian you were. It didn't seem to her at the time that God's grace or the radical love of Jesus had anything to do with it. In fact, it was the ability to do good that joined people together, or at least their ability to appear good. And not everybody can pull that off, she says. So the fulfilling of the commandments in love, I think, means not only what we do not do, but also looking at the other side of the coin, what do we do? It's not just about do not kill, but also how do we make someone's life more whole? Not just about not committing adultery, but how can we be more loving and faithful to our spouses? Not just do not steal, but let us be generous with what we have. And I've come to start to see sin not so much as a failure to follow these list of do nots, these list of rules, but instead as a failure to love. In the great commandment, Jesus tells us that we are to love God with all that we are and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And when we fail that love, we give authority over to principalities and powers that promise us a life of ease, often at the expense of others. When we fail this love, we often diminish the worth of people who are different than we are and have different experiences. When we fail love, we even forget that we are beloved of 
beloved and called children of God. The most minimal interpretation of this love that we are called finds itself in verse 10, where Paul says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. So at minimum, love does no harm. Which should cause us to ask ourselves, who feels harmed in our society? Whose worth has been diminished? Are we putting things in the air and the water that harms others? Are we objectifying people? Are we prejudiced toward those who have different experiences? Dr. Cornell West, who's the professor of philosophy at Union Theological Seminary, is famous for saying justice is what love looks like in public, just like tenderness is what love feels like in private. And in verse 11, Paul moves to the reason for the urgency of this love. He says, you know what time it is. So I'll admit that often during this time we've been apart, when I wake up in the mornings, I have no real sense of what day it is. My rhythms of the week have been interrupted from working at home. For many of you, you're watching this on Sunday morning. For me, it's Thursday. It can be so disoriented. But Paul uses this metaphor because Paul knows we understand it. In fact, if you're like me, we grew up listening to stories about Rip Van Winkle and Sleeping Beauty because they remind us of the human condition. We become tired, we get drowsy, and we fall asleep until something wakes us up to the moment. Paul believes it's time for a spiritual awakening. So we have to think about how we consider time. I think for me, I often look at Ecclesiastes 3. For everything there is a season. A time for everything under the earth. Or we may look at chronos, the Greek word that is production-oriented clock time. By which we make our schedules. By which we find our productivity and it rewards our busyness. But the word in scripture that appears here is kairos. It's the inbreaking of God time, the lose all track of time time, opportune time. In the New Testament, this time moves always forward toward the goal of completion of God's beloved community when we are changed and everything is made new. Someday, that day, there will be peace and justice and death will be no more. And that is what Paul means when he says the day is near, when everything is set right. So as we move toward that goal, we are called to live as the light against the works of darkness, to live against injustice, violence, inequity, or the diminishment of the worth of any other human being. The time is now to live honorably, to honor truth, to follow the way of Jesus, the way of grace, the sacrificial love that was made known to us. And it's time to prioritize love. In a book I recently read by Greg McCowan on essentialism, I learned that the word priority came into the English language about 1400, sometime in the 1400s. And it was singular. It meant the very first or the prior thing, the thing that was most important. 
And it stayed singular, the word priority, for the next 500 years until the 1900s when we pluralized the, the, the term and start talk, started talking about multiple priorities. Illogically, I think we reasoned that by changing the world, we would bend it into our sense of time. And now is the time, now is the time to make love our only priority, to make it singular again so that it informs all of our actions. It's time to wake up because the light is dawning. We can be a vital part of a sacred city rising among us. Our salvation, our reconciled, beloved community is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Mary Hinkle Shore says that Paul, it's important to know, doesn't use guilt or fear to motivate, but rather joy and hope. Paul says that salvation, not condemnation, is nearer to us than when we became believers. In this text, the coming day is not a threat, but a gift. We are always in that moment just before dawn. Having been saved, having already been been saved, we are now being saved, and we will one day be saved. So as we lay aside the things of darkness, Paul says, we are to clothe ourselves with the armor of light, to protect us from evil because we know that the power of love is stronger than all the principalities and powers that bring darkness into our midst. So we put on the very nature of Jesus. In Colossians 3, we read that as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, we are to clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, and meekness. We're to bear with one another, and if anybody has a need, we meet it. If anyone has a complaint, we forgive. Above all, the scripture says, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. As Deborah sang beautifully just a little while ago, we are called to be channels of God's peace. Where there is hatred, we are supposed to bring love. Where there is injury, we bring forgiveness. Where there is despair, we are the agents of hope. And where there is darkness, we put on the armor of light. But we can only do that if we not so much seek to be consoled as to console to be understood as to understand, or to be loved as much as we should love. How are followers, how are we as followers of Jesus to live in our world today? That's the question. We live with love as our one obligation. And we also live as people of faith, walking into the light of dawn, oriented into God's future, living with hope. This past week, many mourn the death of actor Chadwick Boseman, who was raised in Anderson, South Carolina, not much further from where I grew up. He was probably best known for his role as Black Panther, king of the city of Wakanda. So I thought I would end with a quotation from the end of the movie, a call to wake up to the moment, a call to live into the kairos, the opportune time, I'm going to substitute Wakanda with the word the church. 
The church will no longer watch from the shadows. We cannot. We must not. We will work to be an example of how we, brothers and sisters on this earth, should treat each other. Now, more than ever, the illusions of division threaten our very existence. We all know the truth, that more connects us than separates us. But in times of crisis, the wise build bridges, while the foolish build barriers. We must find a way to look after one another, as if we were one single tribe. The time is now to pay our debts, to wake up to this moment. Because what the world needs now is love, sweet love, not just for some, but for everyone. May it be so. Amen.